Hey ladies, I feel like it's been so long since I actually recorded a full chapter of reading. Man, I don't know where the time goes. I try not to get myself too busy and then before I know it, things are just piling on. I need to work a little bit harder at that, about not over overbooking. Um, but I'm happy to be here and I am about to read chapter 15 because we are down to our last two chapters, believe it or not. And my goal is to get both chapters recorded this week for those that need to listen to it. Um, So we're in part three of the book, and this is called Thinking as Jesus Thinks. Chapter 15. Who do you think you are? My oldest kid went to college this year. And as many... Wait, just kidding. My oldest kid went to college this year, and as any dedicated mother would, I tried to cram every last lesson into his precious mind in the final weeks before he moved out. Here's the essence of my final speech delivered to Connor, there in the front seat of my car. Son, you are light. I know this because I have seen God in you. I have seen you go from a selfish punk kid to a young man who responds to conviction, a young man who hears from and responds to God. You love people. You put others' interests ahead of your own. All this is evidence that God is in you. So you are light. It's a fact. It's your God-given nature as one of his kids. And you are headed into the pitch black darkness. There will be times when you act like the darkness, but you will never be the darkness. You will never be at home in the darkness again. Just as I wanted those powerful truths to take root in Connor's mind, I want the same for you and for me. Because only by clinging to those truths with all that is in us can we find moment by moment victory in this battle of our minds. You see, the moment you receive Jesus, you are a new creation. But also at that moment, the enemy determines to come against you. So while you are given power and authority over minds and our lives have even the darkness coming against us, we have to fight an all-out war against sin and darkness if we don't want to be trapped by them. Paul casts this vision for us in Philippians 3. There are many out there taking our paths, choosing our goals, and trying to get you to go along with them. They hate Christ's cross, make bellies, make their bellies their gods, and they can think of their appetites. But there's far more to life for us. We're just citizens of high heaven. We're waiting for arrival of the Savior, the Master, Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. He'll make us beautiful and whole with the same powerful skill by which he is putting everything as it should be, under and around him. Nothing has more impact to shift our minds and lives than knowing who we are and the power or the authority we have been given. Thinking with the mind of Christ, when the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4, 4, 7, 4, 4 through 7 reminds us, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because we are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then the heir of the, the heir through God. 
We move from being slaves to sin to being children of God. We will probably be trying to wrap our minds around this astonishing truth until we get to heaven. But we must try because it shifts everything about us. As God's children filled the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.16, the issue is whether we're using is whether we're using it to think the thoughts that Jesus might think. Are we taking every thought captive and training our minds daily to think like Christ? Part two of this book was all about the choices we can make to help shift our thinking from the self-defeating, self-degenerating thoughts to the truth about God and the truth about us. It was all about training our minds to make a choice, a choice empowered by the same spirit that led Jesus to make the choices he made. In other words, because Jesus stole away from the crowds to be with his father, you can choose to be still with God instead of distracting yourself. Because Jesus chose to live in community with 12 men before he ascended into heaven, you can choose to let people you know instead to let you can choose to let people know you instead of isolating yourself. Because Jesus trusted the Heavenly Father in his deepest moment of grief before he went to the cross, you can choose to stop being afraid of what the future holds and trust God. Because Jesus had every reason to become a cynic about the world's brokenness, yet constantly choose to love sinners, you can choose to delight in God and the people around you. Because Jesus won the victory over sin and death and has made us more than conquerors through his love, you can choose to be grateful no matter what. Because Jesus didn't leave us alone but promised us the Holy Spirit as our helper, you can choose to get out there and do something. Because Jesus chose these things, you and I can choose the same. Despite my good grades in high school science class, I never loved the subject. Still, something tells me that if I went back to those bio biology, chemistry, and earth science classes today, I'd love them. The more life I live, the more I crave knowing how it all works. The closer I get to God, the more fascinated I become by the design of our bodies and our minds. Geek out with me for a moment over this. Each thought matters. Each thought you think matters a lot. I'm not speaking arbitrarily here. I'm speaking scientifically. Scientifically speaking, every thought we think changes our brains. Let me explain. Inside your brain are about 86 billion nerve cells called neurons. If you're, if you're keeping count, that represents 2%, oh, 0.2% of your body's 37 trillion cells. Inside each of those 86 billion or so neurons are microtubes, tubules, each of which 1,000 times smaller in diameter than one strand of your hair. In other words, way too small to see. But their lack of visibility to the human eye doesn't make them any less important to the human experience. They mean everything to how we process life. Microtubules have been called the brains of the cell and can be likened to a Lego set during a free build. This is what I call it, anyway. When my son ditches the instructions that come with each set in favor of sitting with piles and piles of colored bricks before him, relying only on his imagination to tell him how the assembly should go. Let's say that you're one free building and you decide to assemble a tree. You might reach for several brown brick bricks to make the trunk 
and branches and then a few light and dark green bricks to fill out leaves. Let's say partway through the assembly, you change your mind and want to build a fence instead. Well, you keep going with the brown bricks, but you might alter the shape of the build from a trunk-like shape to, a long, to the long slats of a fence. You don't have, you don't need green bricks at all. If partway through that build, you decide you really want to make a robot, then you push the, aside the brown bricks and reach for a handful of gray bricks and take it from the top. Inside your neurons, those microtubules are constantly building and deconstructing and reforming and coming apart and adjusting and shifting and stopping and starting again in accordance with, wait for it, your every thought. With each thought you think, those microtubules work hard to provide mental scaffolding to support that thought. That scaffolding gives structure to the entire nerve cell and in the truest sense alters your brain. Mind blown yet? Wait, it gets better. Guess how long it takes a microtubule to finish the scaffolding that gives structure to the cell? From creation to completion, what's your guess? 10 minutes. I'm not making this up. From the time you think a thought to that thought having psychologically, scientifically, indisputably changed your brain, 10 minutes have elapsed. Your singular thought has enhanced some neural circuits and caused others to die off. It has awakened some neurons and allowed others to drift to sleep. It has built an entire microtubular city in some parts of your mind and left others in a ghost, total ghost town. All from one single thought. Now, there are two ways to look at this information I've given you. One leaves us terrified and distressed. If I think even one negative thought, I could wreck my whole brain in 10 minutes flat. I guess that's technically true, but before you spiral into despair, let's consider the other way. If you made a habit of thinking negative thoughts, you're only 10 minutes away from fresh start. Pull out the mind map you created at the beginning of this book. Would your map be the same if you mapped your thoughts today? Have you noticed the thoughts you are thinking? Have you started to interrupt them and by remembering you have a choice? Are your spirals shorter and fewer? With each positive choice made, choosing stillness of distraction, for example, or community instead of isolation, or surrender instead of anxiety. We're training ourselves to use the mind of Christ that we have. The more we make these positive choices, the more reflect, reflective that approach becomes. We said that at first such a shift is possible through conscientiously, deliberately interrupting our spirals. But as we practice more, that shift becomes profitable and then predictable, and then utterly instinctive to us. Eventually, we get to, play, to a place where we don't even realize we're, attempt, we're interrupting our negative thinking in order to choose Christ, mind of Christ thinking because the impulse has become so ingrained. I linked it to the cutting it to cutting the road in the woods. At first, the path is marked by flattened leaves on a, for, a foot-worn soil. But over time, the demand for the path will cause someone to come in and lay gravel on top of the dirt and then pour cement on top of the gravel and then put a mile marker sign and streetlights 
at regular intervals along the way. Eventually, the path is so clear-cut, it would be senseless to take another route. That path is just the path you always take. That path keeps you in step with God's Spirit. That path is the way of constant surrender. That path is the way of abundant humility. That path is the way of full reliance on Jesus, with every step for every moment. Training ourselves to take the path in our thinking is crucial because when the pressure is on and we're stressed out and hurting, how we practice is how we will play. I recently spoke to a field full of girls at Baylor University. I'm still awestruck at what went down. I preached about Paul's declaration in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are living tied down and defined by our sin when the Bible tells us we are free and there's no condemnation in Jesus. Why don't we live it as if we are free? I challenge the girls to just shout out what they are struggling with and bring it to light, the dark hell they have been dealing with. To my surprise, one by one started standing up. In the middle of their campus, they stood up and shouted out one struggle after another. This went on until everyone was standing. It was beautiful. I had them get in groups and pray over each, over each thing that had kept them from being free while I asked God what he wanted to tell them next. This is when a student came up to me and said, I think you should tell them this no longer has power over them. I handed her the mic and said, you tell them. Her voice reached out across the field and beyond as she shouted, Dishonesty no longer has power over me. Dishonesty no longer has power over Baylor's campus. Impromptu lines began to form on each side of the stage, and students took, took turns shouting in the mic that their sin and their wounds no longer had power over them. Suicide no longer has power over me. Suicide no longer has power over Baylor's campus. Pornography no longer has power over me. Pornography no longer has power over Baylor's campus. I have never seen anything like it. Not only were they throwing down their last 2% publicly, they were also denying the enemy's power over them. God can make that kind of breakthrough happen anywhere and with anyone. So this shame, this fear, this doubt, it no longer has power over you. It no longer has power over our generation. So let's train our minds to think on that truth. Ooh, that is something. I would have loved to have seen that. All just those ladies uniting and helping one another to be bold. All right, on page 211. The well-trained mind. I talked with an astronaut recently. He goes up into space from time and time, from time to time and hangs out. My jaw was dropped for the entirety of our conversation. His normal everyday reality is that cool. His name is Shane Kimber. And my favorite thing about him is that he's afraid of heights. Or he used to be afraid of heights. Does anyone ever really get over a fear of heights? Evidently Shane did. Because the last time he was set for a space mission, he was so relaxed that he fell asleep on the launch pad. I'm not even kidding. His fellow astronauts had to nudge him and say, Hey Shane, 
We're about to blast off. Chain said that his whole life is spent either preparing for a space mission, participating in a space mission, or cooling off from a mission, as he calls it. I asked what a mission is like, and here are some tidbits from what he said. When you're about to launch into space, you are trapped or you are strapped into a capsule that is attached to the rocket boosters that will blast 17,500 miles per hour in a jiffy and get you to outer space in eight and a half minutes. You get to space and look back and see planet Earth in all her glory, the whole big round ball. You then proceed to work 12-hour days for 10 days straight, collecting samples, conducting experiments, taking walks, you know, in space. At the end of your day, you retire to a soundproof sleeping quarters that are the size of a telephone booth, and you strap yourself to your bed, lest you float around all night. You peek out your window, and you see the oceans, the continents, the moons, the stars, before drifting off to sleep. Now, not only is it hard on an astronaut's body to be in space, but it's also hard on their minds. They're separated from friends and family and normal earthly routines for days, sometimes months on end. Despite the wonderful aspects of their job, they know that life is going on without them back home. They can feel isolated. Emotions can run dark. Shane told me about an extended mission he was on last year when he had, he had really had to mind his mind. We launched in September and were scheduled to be home mid-February. In late January, our crew received some troubling news from our mission control. For a whole host of reasons, we wouldn't be landing until April now. This wasn't like being an hour late for dinner. Shane would be two months late. Shane was ready to be home. Shane's wife and kids were ready for him to be home. The entire crew ached to get home, yet they would not be going home. How in the world did you cope, I asked him. And in his response, he said four words I'll never, ever forget. I trusted my training. Shane so believed in his work, in his mission to serve humanity, in the fact that the mission control had their best interests at heart, in God's faithful provision, come what may, that he was able to arrest the thoughts that he would have otherwise derailed him and think more useful things. I spent years and years learning how to be a successful astronaut, he said. I believe the best. I called my wife and I got busy finishing my task. I trusted my training, Shane told me, words that lingered with me for days. It's not easy to stop believing lies. We can't simply sit back and wait for our minds to heal, for our thoughts to change. We train. That's how truth gains the victory in the battle of our minds. We stick to our heads in our Bible days in and out. We stick our head in our Bibles days in and out. You might not be able to fully grab hold of truth on day two, but on day 102, you'll be taking hold in your heart and mind. We wake up in the morning, and rather than get our phones, we get on our knees and we submit to our thoughts to Jesus. We invest in healthy relationships and intentionally go to them when we start to spiral. We choose well daily, moment by moment. We train our minds. And when a new temptation to spiral presents itself, we trust our training. Think of who you really are. Kate, my 16-year-old daughter, looked up from her sushi and said, Mom, my mind is spinning. 
I know the right answers, but I need you to remind me. Who does Jesus say I am? I could see it. She felt desperate. She felt alone. Her mind had been running wild for some time, and she couldn't make it stop. She needed me to reach in, help grab the reins, and slow it down. I was so struck by this amazing young woman in front of me that I kind of reverted to seeing her as my little girl, now all grown up, instead of a fierce woman about to change the world. You are smart, I said. You are passionate and generous and creative and cute. Mom, Kate interrupted. I don't want to know what you say about me. I want to know what Jesus says. Oh, right, of course, because everything else is like chasing the wind. Ecclesiastic says, our minds spin and spin. Oh, because everything else is like chasing the wind, Ecclesiastic says. Our minds spin and spin, often grabbing hold of lies in the search for stability. Messages get mixed and it feels like we can't quite put our feet back down on the simple truths of what it means to love Jesus, what it means to be loved by Jesus. If, like Kate, you need to be reminded of who Jesus says you are, may I put my hands on the sides of your face and tell you again what he says about himself and about you. I am who I am. Exodus 3.14 I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and I am the last. Revelation twenty two thirteen. I am light. In me there is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, 5. My hand laid the foundation of earth and my right hand spread over the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Isaiah forty eight thirteen. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jeremiah 1, 5. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. John fifteen sixteen. I am who blots out your tra- transgressions. I will not remember your sins. Isaiah forty three twenty five. To all who receive me, who believe in my name, I give the right to become children of God. John 1, 12. My, oh, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians three sixteen. My spirit is within you. Ezekiel thirty six twenty seven. I will not leave you. Deuteronomy 31, 8. I will equip you for every good work I've planned. Hebrews 13, 21. I gave you a spirit, not of our fear but of power and love and self-control, 2 Timothy 1.7. I will build my church through you, and the gates of hell will not overcome it, Matthew 16.18. I will comfort you as you wait, Isaiah 66.13. I will remind you this is all real, John 14.26. I am on my way, Revelation 3.11. My steadfast love endures forever, Psalms 138.8 In just a little while, I am coming and I will take you to the place where I am. Hebrews 10.37 and John 14.3 You will inherit the earth. Psalm 25.13 You will be with me. I will wipe every tear from your eyes and death will be no more. Behold, I am making all things new. 
Revelation 21, 3 through 5. My kingdom is coming. My will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, 10. God has declared these truths about himself and about me. All these things are true for you and for everyone who loves and follows Jesus too. This is who we are because of who this is who we are because of whose we are. We make our choices based on these truths, and our God doesn't change and always delivers on his promises. End of chapter 15.